I'm Curtis Schaefer. And I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And this is Sacred and Profane, a show where we explore how religions shape us and how we shape religions. Our story today can start in many times and places, but let's make it simple and go back to May of 2020. If you can remember the early days of COVID-19, that's when millions of people around the world suddenly found themselves inside and cut off from their daily routines. That was the case for Muhammad Ali Mojaradi. Hello, everyone. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Muhammad Ali Mojaradi. I'm an Iranian-American who is in Tehran at the moment. Uh, corona had just started, and I was figured, okay, I need something to do. You can't get a job. You know, it was right in the beginning of the lockdowns. There's no one was going to hire you. I was just sitting at home. But right there on his bookshelf was something to do. Every Persian-speaking family has a few poetry books on their living room bookshelf. They're usually these fancy leather-bound editions that maybe you'd read on a holiday or some sort of special event like a wedding. So I grew up with that collection of books, but like most families, we didn't really sit down and read them that often. As a hobby, he'd been translating Persian poetry for curious friends in the U.S. I think it was just to kind of show some elements maybe that I found particularly captivating to my friends. But the pandemic meant that he finally had the time to translate poetry every day. And it really motivated me to kind of put full energy into this project that had really just been maybe like on the weekend, I would read a couple poems, translate a line or two, and set it aside until the next week. He kept posting his translations online to Instagram and to a new account on Twitter. He, he often added short tweets explaining the background of some of the poets. People seemed to enjoy what he was sharing, but he was tweeting for a niche audience. So when he posted a tweet thread one May afternoon about a poet who died almost 800 years before, he thought the most it would do was start a conversation among his followers. First, it, you know, it spread through, you know, circles of people who are maybe my peers, you know, university students. And then I started to see journalists and academics and professors of Islamic studies, you know, People that I've been following their work and reading their books are retweeting my thread saying, wow, this is great. Everyone, you know, check this out. In other words, it went viral. And I was, I was just utterly in shock. My phone was overheating from the notifications. Maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise that thousands and thousands of people were interested because the poet that Muhammad had been writing about was Rumi. Chances are, if you're an English speaker, you've come across a poem by Rumi before, even if you didn't know it. Books of Rumi's poetry have been bestsellers in the U.S. for many years, and clips of Rumi have become popular inspirational quotations. It's the kind of universalist inspirational text that splashed over a photo of a beautiful mountain landscape and post it on Facebook or Pinterest. The wound is the place where light enters you. There is a candle in your heart ready to be kindled. There is a void in your soul ready to be filled. You feel it, don't you? A heart filled with love is like a phoenix that no cage can imprison. You won't just find Rumi on the internet, of course. 
Coldplay uses Rumi as song lyrics. Just being human is a guest house. Beyonce named one of her children Rumi. Brad Pitt has a line of Rumi's poetry tattooed on his arm. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That last bit was also tweeted out by Ivanka Trump in reaction to her father's so-called Muslim travel ban. And all this was what was bothering Mohammed Majaradi when he started tweeting about Rumi's translation. These bits of verse were circulating everywhere but they were totally unlike the Rumi he had grown up with as a Persian speaker and the poetry he'd spent so many hours reading and translating himself. But before we get to how and why a long-dead poet from Central Asia has become the source of English-language inspirational quotes, let's talk about who Rumi was. Even the name we know him by in English shows us how complex the idea of translating his work can be. So Rumi, as he's known in the West, was born Muhammad ibn Hussein al-Balkhi. It's interesting that he's, he became known as Rumi in the West. He's called Rum, or I should say Rumi, because he ended up living in what Muslims called Rum at the time, which is Arabic for Rome. He didn't live in the city of Rome. He lived in Anatolia in modern Turkey. But because it was recently conquered from the Roman Empire, the Byzantines, Muslims persisted calling it Rome. Rumi did live in what is now Turkey, but he was born along the border of modern-day Afghanistan. His family left the city he grew up in, possibly after it was sacked by Genghis Khan. They moved from city to city in the Islamic world. Rumi's family did spend months traveling through the Muslim world trying to secure employment, but all the places that they went to were already well settled. You know, there were local scholars there. They didn't really need people. So they were forced to go to the far frontiers. Eventually, they settled in the city of Konya, and his father founded a well-respected madrasa that Rumi would help to run. It wasn't like Baghdad or Damascus or Cairo or, you know, Mecca and Medina, where his dad was hoping he could find a job. Where Islam is settled, and most people are Muslims, or if they're not, they're culturally Arabized, right? So you have Christians, but they speak Arabic. In Konya, Rumi was living amongst Greek Christians and Armenian Christians and Turks and Kurds who still had not become Muslim. So they were still following animistic religions or maybe they would be called pagan religions. I think Rumi living among so many non-Muslims and having non-Muslim students, and it's even thought maybe his first wife died, his second wife was a Christian. This kind of maybe gave him this universalist mindset that attracts so many non-Muslims to him. For years, he remained a fairly conventional Muslim scholar from a family of scholars in this diverse frontier city, until one day he encountered a man named Shams al-Din. It's not exactly settled how their first interaction played out, but the earliest sources put it like this. If you could imagine someone like Rumi walking you know, through the courtyard of a madrasa, the modern equivalent, and you know, excuse this type of language, but kind of like a vagrant, a bum, basically, accosts him and says, hey, I have a question. And you, know, you can imagine your modern favorite professor, out of maybe pained politeness, just says, okay, fine, I'll answer your question. You know, just to be kind, doesn't want to you know, rebuff this person. That question started a long and playful conversation about theology. 
one that would eventually lead Rumi to embrace Sufism, an ecstatic mysticism that emphasizes renouncing the material world to create a closer relationship with God. And that is when, to his family's dismay, Rumi stopped acting like a respectable scholar and began to write poetry. Rumi began to compose what we would call odes in English or ghazals, which are these, they're supposed to be five to 15 lines, but sometimes Rumi being the, the ecstatic mystic, they would go up to 50 lines and sometimes include this repetition or almost it, it felt like it was a, a spiritual experience. He would write thousands and thousands of lines of poetry before his death, and he would go on to compose the Masnavi, a massive book of poetry that is a meditation on the nature and purpose of life. It's a fascinating piece of work. Rumi draws on all sorts of stories that his neighbors from Konya would have been familiar with, stories from the Quran and the Hadith, but also folk tales and Christian and Jewish scripture. If you look at the face value, it does seem like a just normal storybook. Tales from the Quran, the different prophets from the Bible, the Old Testament, um, Persian culture, older mystics, um, maybe just general wisdom or stories that exist in many Eastern cultures that are you know, translated or changed as they move along. But each story has a very deep meaning and metaphor. Often the stories are followed by commentary from Rumi and from his followers. They are sometimes in the room as he's writing and are helping him to copy his poems and edit them, and they write themselves into the scene. In other words, it's a view into Rumi's creative process, which is sometimes collaborative. Muhammad likens these passages to watching a movie with the director's commentary turned on. It's interesting, it's almost like watching a movie with the behind the scenes when you read the Masnavi, because not only is the narrative there, but Hassan al-Din, you know, bless him, actually wrote their back and forths into the text as well. So you can see their side conversations about um, you know, the stories and maybe someone else who was present would ask and Rumi would add an anecdote to explain a point. And because of that, the Masnavi is very interesting. You have stories, but interspliced are these small anecdotes or small explanations or small proverbs that are quoted to explain what you're reading. You can see how this would be difficult to translate. We have these stories from different cultures, plus the running commentary from Rumi and his followers. And the key to all of it was Rumi's Sufi faith. In the years after his death, the Masnavi was widely embraced across the Muslim world, even by non-Sufis. It's also important to note that the Masnavi is a very important work in Islamic civilization, and especially in the lands where Persian was a language of scholarship. So in the Ottoman lands in Iran and South Asia, so much so that Persian poets, many of them likened the, the Masnavi to the Quran. So they would say, I won't say that Rumi is a prophet or that the Masnavi is the Quran, but Rumi had a revelation and the Masnavi is a scripture. This is how important this book was. It was very central to framing kind of the, the Muslim conscious and the Muslim psyche. This was the version of Rumi that Muhammad read as a teenager, and it affected his own faith profoundly. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in a household that was, you could say, kind of culturally religious. I think I've seen this among Catholics as well, where you're not necessarily very devout, but there's a strong sense of this is part of our identity and this is important to us. We kind of had that relationship with Islam. And as I started to become 15, 16, 17, 
you know, you develop a sense of where you are in the world and what the world is all about. I start to get the sense that there are questions or feelings I had that Islam could not address properly. This kind of very basic cultural, you know, we're Muslims, we pray, we have the Quran. And I almost, I wouldn't say I just lost interest in, in religion completely. And when I found Rumi in, in similar poets as well in, in the Sufi tradition, I started to realize that I had been introduced to a very superficial version of Islam and that there were Muslims like me before who were very caught up in these in these questions that they were pondering them constantly, trying to make sense of life. I remember feeling very deeply moved. I mean, it, might, it might be difficult to picture, but I'd be in a taxi. Some song that had a Rumi quote would come. And I would read the line and I would Google it and I would go to the poem and read it and reread it and I'd be walking to wherever I was going and keep reading it and it would just stick with me. It felt it felt like I couldn't stop thinking about it or I couldn't stop reading it. It just really drew me in. But that's not the version of Rumi that most English speakers come across. And that's largely due to the popularity of one translator, a man named Coleman Barks. If you've read Rumi in English, chances are you're reading a Coleman Barks interpretation of Rumi's work. Barks is both a poet himself and a scholar of poetry. And his versions of Rumi are not just acclaimed in the US. He even received an honorary doctorate from the University of Tehran for his work in popularizing Rumi outside Iran. But what a casual reader of Coleman Barks' translation, say someone who came across a single poem or a snippet of Rumi online, may not know is that Barks himself does not read or speak Persian. His versions of Rumi are reinterpretations of English translations from the 19th and 20th centuries. Barks found these translations stiff and formal, and so he reworked them into free verse, adding in emotional nuance that he hoped would bring them to life for a contemporary audience. Mr. Barks, he is very upfront in his introductions and in the indices, he includes the particular page numbers that he's drawn from. And he, he doesn't mince words, and I definitely want that to be clear. He's never lied. He always mentions that he rephrases existing translations and that he is not a quote-unquote expert on Islam and he is not a Muslim. So the issue isn't necessarily what he's done per se, but maybe what became of it. And sometimes, you know, when you let a cat out of a bag, you, you don't know what's going to happen. Okay, so let's take a look at one of his most popular translations. This is the one that you see all over the internet and on Brad Pitt's arm. It goes like this. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there when the soul lies down in that grass. The world is too full to talk of ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. So could you offer a more complete translation? And then I'd love to discuss with you what's been left out of that version and how what's been left out changes the meaning of the poem. This is definitely the most famous Rumi poem, maybe, in, of course, outside of Persian in any language. So if anyone has seen any Rumi quote, it's probably this one. And I've, I have my own translation of it. That's uh, if I could if I could claim it's a bit more literal. The way I've translated it is beyond faith, 
disbelief, a place is found. We have a yearning for that desert plain. The sage arrives, bows his head on the ground. Faith, disbelief, place aren't in that domain. In this poem, Rumi's trying to express that Islam, faith, orthodoxy, heresy, and all these other questions, they're all, as he would say, veils that shroud the beloved. He's essentially getting at this, this Sufi idea that these are all kind of human endeavors to understand God, but ultimately all the human endeavors are kind of ob obstructing the actual path to God. Now, how Rumi would, would caveat that, or maybe I can, if I can speak for him, he would say, just because you know that now doesn't mean that you could just cast off religion and disbelief and forget about it all. You need to get to that advanced point where you understand it, where you are fully kind of developed. And the problem that I have with the Barks rendering, as, as beautiful and as it is and as much as it does express a lot of these sentiments, is that by changing faith and disbelief to the more generic wrongdoing and right doing, he's removing this poem from this kind of Islamic and Sufi context where it kind of loses your, you lose the ability to make sense of it, right? You need that context to understand what Rumi is actually getting at. And this is the essential problem that Mohammed dove into in his Twitter thread, and one I really identify with as a translator myself. There's always a tension in translation between accurately rendering the words of the poem in its original language while trying to capture the feeling of it in another language. This is why it's good that there are many translations of ancient texts, like Homer's Odyssey, or the Bible, or Buddhist sutras, Different translations can capture different aspects of the work. But the success of Bark's version of Rumi means that it has become THE Rumi in English. And this is also the challenge that Bark's Rumi poses. It has come to completely dominate the English-speaking world. If Bark's had been kind of a marginal figure in the English-speaking Rumi, if there was, you know, 10 different translators who were very famous, and Mr. Arberry's and Mr. Nicholson's and et cetera, their translations were all on the bookshelf, that would be one thing. I think the, the bigger issue is that Mr. Barks has kind of defined Rumi. So when you go to the bookstore, all the Rumi books are by him and maybe one other person who's kind of following his footsteps. So I think that that's really the bigger issue is the fact that he has totally defined Rumi uh, in the English language. I've talked to Rumi translators who say, I want to get another book published, but publishers say, hey, there's not really much room for new Rumi books. So they have to go with obscure publishers that give them, you know, not the greatest terms. But the problem also with the, the versions is he kind of takes too many liberties. So if he had just taken the original translations and just reworded them into an American idiom, that would have been fine. I think the issue is that he just interpreted too much. So some of the translations that he has in my research, I've compared them to the AJR Barry or Nicholson translations. And if you didn't tell me they were versions of the same poem, sometimes you don't piece it together immediately. Sometimes, for example, he takes parts from one poem and parts from another, another poem and puts them together or reorders the couplets. And it, it's just a bit too much. And I th actually, he mentions this in the, in the introduction to his book. He says that the way this book is organized is intended to confuse academics who have a very rigid understanding of what translation is. You know, I think Barks captured something about late 20th century, maybe especially American spirituality. And earlier you mentioned 
that word spiritual or spirituality are the Barks translations or the Barks versions and Rumi and Persian, are they are they getting at similar things in human experience or are they just totally different? Are they apples and oranges in the two languages and, and multiple versions? I would say that Barks succeeded as a, as a translator. I don't know if that's the correct word. In that sense, actually, how I think of it as is the people who were reading Rumi's poetry when he was composing it or centuries later, or even today, what feeling is invoked in them? And the people who read Barks's versions or renderings, are they feeling the same thing? And my, my tendency is to say yes. So in that sense, you could say his renderings were a perfect success. So for example, if a English reader who is already, you know, not interested in Christianity due to their background or their life experiences, if they read one of these King James Bible style Rumi translations from 1850, would that invoke anything in them? Probably not. So you can make the argument that maybe Barks's approach, setting aside the the issues that he's is inserted, but his general approach could be more conducive to um, show, you know, showing Rumi to modern readers because ultimately it's not like translating, you know, the instruction manual for a washing machine. You know, it's the idea isn't just to get the exact information down. The idea is to produce this type of spiritual movement in the soul that Rumi was trying to create when he was reciting these poems. So maybe Rumi himself, if he were to, you know, be zapped here and and, and look at people reading Coleman Barks and tearing up and having these spiritual movements and, and excelling spiritually, as, as Rumi would say, and look at an academic just reading this King James Bible version, just very dry and boring. Maybe Rumi himself would say, well, this one, at least it creates that feeling, that movement in your heart, even if it misses the details. Right. And, and to be sympathetic, you know, the details are difficult to translate. I mean you know, different cultures have different anthropologies and the English speaking world wouldn't understand some of the literal renderings, which you've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. This is a big problem that translators, I would say even from cultures that are similar to each other face. Maybe someone translating from Italian into English, you know, they're, uh, you know, Italian and English speakers share a lot in common, but still there's definitely there have to be sentiments or ideas or cultural expressions that you just sometimes feel like, oh, I, I really can't say this in English. Persian poetry, I think the imagery that it uses is completely foreign to, I can't say the you know Western languages generally, but definitely the English language. For example, so you could say that my lover is like a Turkic mercenary whose eyebrow is like a bow and arrow and the eyelashes are like the arrows who fires eyelash arrows at the hearts of lovers, right? Oh, I'm swooning. <laughs> right, it becomes kind of uh, nonsensical. And, and there's so many elements that also rely on kind of cultural understandings of medieval Muslim lands, for example. So you have, I don't know, when you want to call your lover, you want to say your lover is very unkind and broke your heart, you would say, oh, my lover is a bloodthirsty Mongol. Well, that makes sense then, but maybe nowadays, you know, 800 years after the Mongol conquests have wrapped up, people would find that, you know, either confusing or if they understood the context, maybe off-putting. So 
it, it can be quite complicated to negotiate how much you can change the metaphor, right? Because on one hand, you can't change it too much or you can't get rid of the metaphors completely all the time. You, I still feel like I need to include some of the original. But then at some points, it's just, it's too difficult to render it in any literal way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so also intrigued by some of the ways in which Rumi is, Rumi is often invoked in popular culture as sort of the way for us to all get along, the way for people of different faiths to reach toward universal goals. And I think what's interesting about what you've highlighted is that it's actually the particularities of a tradition, attending to the particularities of a tradition, that is actually a firmer foundation for for dialogue. Definitely. I, I agree. I think that the sentiment to be universalist or to emphasize the universal elements in Sufism, the idea that God, God is everywhere and that God is one and that all religions are ultimately attempting to reach the same God. I think that sometimes there can be a negative side effect of if you overemphasize that, like you mentioned, you lose the particularities and the universal elements are made meaningful by the particular elements, if that makes sense. So if there's only particularities, then non-Muslims would never care about Rumi, right? And if there were only universalities, then maybe Muslims wouldn't care or Rumi would kind of also lose some of the, the meaning that way. So this is, uh, again, a debate within Islam and also, again, due to Rumi being famous also among non-Muslims is, you know, how how necessary is Islam to Sufism? And Rumi and the people he considered his teachers, they thought that the way to reach the universal element is through the particular. I don't know what metaphor to use. Maybe the way you become the general of the army is to first be a private, right? You have to follow the particulars of Islam to understand the universals. So Rumi would, would for example, understand that prayer is, a, is greater than just bowing down and getting up. It's more than just five times a day. But Rumi reached that understanding by doing those prayers, right? And we can never reach the heights that Rumi reached without those particular, I, I don't want to say discipline, but those disciplinary elements of religion, right? Every sp spiritual tradition, like for example, you could look at the Buddhists, even more than Muslims, how, how many rules and particularities there are, how many observances there are, uh, what you can and can't eat, what you can and can't say, these are very important to give the, the universal element the structure that it needs. Are you going to break it to Brad Pitt and Coldplay that they're <laughs> basing their tattoos and their music on a mistranslation? If, if I could reach them, I definitely would. And sometimes I wonder, given how many people have seen the original thread, I think it had tens of millions of, of views or something like that. What if someone, I mean, someone who knows them on a firsthand basis must have seen it. So maybe they told Brad Pitt. <laughs> but uh, it just really speaks to how per, how common or how much a part of pop culture Rumi is that celebrities uh, have it and it's in, you know, gravestones and song lyrics and not just Brad Pitt, but many people have this tattooed or they consider it a big part of kind of their, their life philosophy, right? So as, again, religion um, takes a backseat in, in modern Western life, some people are maybe more gravitate towards science or other ways of understanding the world. But I think still majority of people find more solace or comfort in these kind of spiritual methods of making sense of the world, right? So, so many people 
you know, they, they base their whole understanding of life maybe on, on maybe not this particular poem, but, but these types of poems by, by Colin Bard. So I can only just imagine, you know, what Pratt Pitt would say if he knew that this was mistranslated. Yeah, so th- there are some interesting parallels, too, to the way that translations of, of various scriptural traditions are rendered, right? We, um, we love some translations that are not what we would call accurate in 2022, despite their inaccuracies, or maybe because of their inaccuracies, they've so worked their ways into the hearts and minds of, you know, a wider public. They have, they have their own power, you know, and this is, this is the, the challenge. Right. They definitely take a life of their own in a way. And sometimes I think that Maybe, and, and I can only speak to Rumi, but I've seen this phenomenon happen with quotes from the Buddha, for example. There's even a book, I think it's called, I Can't Believe It's Not Buddha, where they point out all the quotes that are either mistranslated or invented, where they kind of take on their own life. So Rumi, as he's known in India and Iran and Turkey, is a different Rumi than as he's known in America because of Coleman Barks. And it wouldn't be so bad if maybe we just created our own category and said, this Rumi is the, the Rumi of Coleman Barks's, you know, uh, personal journey. And sometimes when I meet people who have who have encountered Colin Barks and they're very dismayed, they message me saying, I'm so upset. I say, view it as training wheels, right? You went through the Coleman Barks, uh, you processed that. Now go for a more literal translation and, and think of Coleman Barks as just a book that prepared you for the real deal. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Today's guest is Mohammad Mojaradi. You can find him on Twitter at Persian Poetics. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at the Religion Lab.